like you to take your Bibles at home and turn with me to the book of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15 today, and our Easter text this morning is going to come from Mark chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 42, and we're going to work our way through Mark 16, verse 8. So if you have your Bibles at home, take them. Mark chapter 15, verses 42 through 16, verse 8. And before we begin to read... Let's take time to pray. Father, thank you that we can gather around your word and that it's no less living or active in our homes with our families than it is in this building together as a congregation. We trust in you this morning, Father. We trust in you that you are going to guide and direct our hearts and minds to exactly what you would want us to learn as we study your word together. We trust in your faithfulness, that you would produce within us the fruit that you would want us to be living in our lives as we read and study your word together this morning. Thank you for an empty tomb. We praise you and we rejoice in the resurrection of our Savior Jesus today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 15, 42 through 16, 8. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should already have died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 
As we open our text this morning, we're confronted with a dilemma in Jesus' death. Jesus has died. Matthew's gospel describes it as Jesus giving up or yielding his spirit. The evening was at hand. And to keep from violating the Sabbath, Jesus' body needs to be removed from the cross and prepared for burial. But we're left with a dilemma. Who will do this work? In the book of Zechariah, the prophet said in chapter 13, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against a man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. The sheep indeed In this moment of Jesus' life, as he hanged dead on the cross, the sheep were scattered. His closest disciples abandoning him. There was fear. There was doubt. There was hopelessness. But Jesus' body had to come off of the cross and go into a tomb. According to prophecy, Isaiah chapter 53, they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. This prophecy from Isaiah long foretold that Jesus must be placed in a grave. And perhaps now, more than ever, the purposes and the plans of God we see left in the hands of weak and feeble Men, where's the tomb? And who will prepare the body of Jesus so that he can be placed inside of it? As the body of Jesus hung on the cross, after he died, he became official property of the Roman government. And even if his disciples would not have scattered, even if they would have not been afraid and abandoned him on the cross, none of them would have had the clout or the money or the authority to dictate to Pilate that Jesus' body should be removed from the cross and prepared for a proper Jewish burial. And then, this is amazing, friends, in a turn of great irony, isn't it amazing? This is exactly how God works all throughout the scripture. And the irony here is beautiful. Think about this. The council from which the very verdict of guilt came against Jesus would be the same council. This is the Sanhedrin that would produce the very men who would remove Jesus's body from the cross. In verse 43, we meet Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of that council. And and these were men who were part of the same council that mocked Jesus and derided him while he was on the cross. The very group that called out to him, if you remember in Matthew chapter 27, verses 42 and 43, they called out, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, 
I am the son of God. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. And with him, according to John's gospel, went a man named Nicodemus. And these two men, secret supporters of Jesus, looking for the kingdom of God, decide that now is a better time than ever to act. And, and it's amazing, just as Nicodemus had come to Jesus in the dead of night all the way back in John chapter 3, so now would he and Joseph come again at night, but this time they would come for very different purposes. If you want to talk about an unpopular position, imagine the position that these men were in. And they had just been part of the kangaroo court that had convicted Jesus and sent him to the cross. Yet their courage here in this situation is amazing. And really, it's demonstrated in two different ways. And the first way is that they, that they stood to lose a lot with their own colleagues and friends by doing this. I mean, we don't read of anywhere in the scriptures where other members of the Sanhedrin are in a hurry to run and to remove Jesus off of the cross so that they don't violate Sabbath codes. We see that nowhere. But the second way that they had to stand courageously is considering what they stood to lose standing before Pilate. I mean, imagine the predicament that Pilate is in. How shocking this would be to him. The very people who had broken, that the very Sanhedrin who had broken their own laws and their own codes in order to have Jesus put to death and hung on a cross, now men from this very same council are coming to him and demanding to have Jesus' body removed. And, and again, we see the hypocrisy of the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders of Jesus' days all throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. Pilate is surprised. And we might expect him to be. But, but he's actually more surprised that Jesus had already died. You see, crucifixion often would take a number of days uh, to have its effect of death on a person. As a person would hang from the cross, inevitably they would grow weaker and their body would slump down and they would not be able to breathe properly and they would begin to suffocate. And so what they would do, friends, is they would push with their feet up so that they could expand their chest and get a breath of air. But as they pushed from their feet, imagine the pain from the nails that had been driven in to their feet or their ankles. And that pain would run up their back, up their legs, up their spine, all the way up through their neck until eventually they had no power and no energy to press themselves up anymore. Most of the men on the cross and most of the people who died on the cross died of suffocation. Imagine that pain and that turmoil. And, and Pilate's surprised it has not been a few days, only but a few hours. And, and it's also hard for us to imagine that Pilate in this moment isn't 
still wrestling with his own personal convictions regarding this crucifixion, one of which he washed his own hands of. But, but we know that washing your hands of a murder does not free your conscience from the guilt of the murder committed. And so in a very God-directed movement of Pilate's heart here, Pilate decides to act on the request of these men, and he summons one of his centurions to go and to find out if Jesus is truly dead. And not only does Pilate find out that Jesus has died, but at that confirmation, he grants the body of Jesus to Joseph and Nicodemus. And now we begin to see, we move from cloudy to clear. The rich man's tomb of Isaiah 53 starts to become clearer to us. Only a man of Joseph's wealth, respectability, and influence would have been granted the body that was the property of the Roman Empire. God's providence and his sovereignty over this entire situation is mightily evident. How he's using men and moving men and women into the positions that he wants them to be at the exact right moment to accomplish his purposes in the resurrection of Jesus. The body is now granted to Joseph, and all that was left was a hurried and very temporary burial. Now, I want you to imagine with me these two men. They're working frantically. Sabbath is about to begin. And they have to, before sunset, so that they don't violate their own Sabbath laws, they have to get Jesus' body down from the cross and prepared for the tomb before night would fall. Now, isn't it interesting? And, And I find it an interesting observation in all of the gospel accounts when we're looking at Jesus's crucifixion and his burial, all of the actions that surround the burial of Jesus speak to the reality that none of the folks that were preparing his body truly believed or understood how temporary their work would be, that there would indeed be a resurrection. I mean, truly, if they had believed that Jesus Christ was going to raise in three days, why would they go through all of the trouble of preparing his body, of buying the shrouds, of wrapping it up, of putting spices on it? All the things that they did. They wrapped Jesus in a linen shroud, one that had been purchased by Joseph, and they lay him in the tomb that Joseph had purchased. Then, in a sign of finality and closure, there's a stone that's rolled against the entrance of a tomb of the tomb, and the guard is placed outside to protect Jesus' body from tomb raiders. But this is not the end of Mark's burial account in chapter 15. There's a more peculiar and a more abrupt ending. If you look down at your Bibles with me, look at verse 47. There is a theme throughout the gospel narratives pertaining to Jesus' resurrection that involves the women who were closest to Jesus. Look at verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph 
saw where he was laid. And I want you for a moment to flash back with me to the crucifixion of Jesus in Matthew chapter 27. The disciples had scattered. Jesus' closest male followers were gone. But from a distance, in Matthew 27 verses 55 and 56, take a look at what we see. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Mark's account also affirms this in verse 40 of chapter 15. You can take a look at that verse. Looking back just in Mark chapter 15 of verse 40, this is not an accident. While the men ran and scattered, the women stood firm and looked on. Safely, from a distance, but they would not abandon their Lord. They would not abandon their friend. They would not abandon Jesus on the cross. And church, I would say to you this morning that it is impossible. We, we simply cannot walk away from the four gospel accounts with a firm understanding of them without seeing both the significant role and the significant place that Jesus gave women in his earthly ministry. He always treats women gently, with love and respect. And at the end of his life, in his moment of his greatest need, it's the women who stand firm and do not abandon him. And these women, they were Jesus' friends. They were ministering to him. They were his partners in ministry. They loved Jesus. And they didn't just demonstrate this love when times were good and all was going well. These women endured through the horrors of the cross to see that Jesus' body would be properly cared for in death. From the birth of Jesus, to serving Jesus, to sitting at Jesus' feet, anointing Jesus, hearing his teaching, present at his death, and present in his miracles, if you remember the prominent role that women played in the resurrection of Lazarus. They're preparing his body for burial. They're the first to the empty tomb on Easter morning. They're the ones trusted with the very message of the resurrection given by the angel in the tomb. At the most important times of Jesus' life and earthly ministry, women are significantly present and active. So, as we open Mark's resurrection chapter in chapter 16, we're not surprised to be confronted with an introduction to these same women. And just as courage was required by the men to see Jesus' body removed from the cross and prepared for burial, so too did it take courage for these women to approach a closed and guarded tomb in order to anoint the body of Jesus. The Sabbath now passed. Mary, Mary, and Salome bring spices so that they might cover the odor of a decomposing body. That is the reality of what they're doing. 
And again, it's striking that in all of these accounts, no one is behaving as if they expect the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Why worry about this? If, if one truly believed that Jesus would be resurrected in just a few days, why go through all the trouble? Why go through all the cost to bring these spices to keep his decaying body from odor? Even Jesus' closest friends and companions did not fully understand or realize the nature and extent of Jesus' words and ministry. Now was the time that Jesus had spoken about so often. He had told his disciples and his followers, he had told the religious leaders in so many different ways that he would rise again. We can go all the way back to John chapter 2 and see this when Jesus was talking about the temple, but really his own body. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Mark chapter 8, 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Luke chapter 9, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised All four gospel accounts. If you remember in Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus alludes even to Jonah's narrative in the Old Testament. Listen to what he says in starting in verse 38 of chapter 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so too will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, Something greater than Jonah is here. All four gospel accounts, Jesus gives ample words and allusions to the reality that indeed he would rise again. Yet here in his death, it appears that no one is behaving as if they believed him. And we can certainly see from the clues in the text that these women had no idea that they would be approaching an empty tomb. They had no idea that they were walking into history's very first resurrection sunrise service. Take a look down at verses 3 to 6. Well, let's look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 16. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? Now, this is a real issue for these ladies. Now, there's a guard that had been posted to watch through the night. Certainly, a guard would be suspicious of any activity in or around Jesus' tomb. He would not be one to roll away the stone for them. 
Perhaps they were planning to wait until Joseph or Nicodemus came back to move the stone. We aren't quite sure what they had in mind, but this is a real dilemma. Who will roll away the stone? Of course, as we sit here in our homes today and celebrate Easter, we already know the answer to that question, don't we? God had gone before. God had removed the obstacle of the stone. And and isn't it amazing that this is still how God handles our what-ifs and our hows and our I-don't-knows in our lives today? He goes before us. He's always before us. God is always before us. And here in 2020, we're worshiping together in our homes for Easter. We're in the middle of our own big dilemma, are we not? I mean, we wouldn't be sitting here in our homes today if we weren't in the middle of our own giant dilemma. And many of us are asking the questions amongst ourselves and perhaps even to God, how will we overcome this obstacle of COVID-19, of the coronavirus? Rolled away stone church is a reminder that God already has our dilemmas resolved and worked out. Even better, he has it worked out for our good and for his glory. Mary and Shalom, they're shocked when they arise at the empty tomb and and. And I'm sure there was a flood of emotions. Imagine here they were worried about who would roll the stone away. And when they get there, they have to be shocked. And the what ifs and the what happens had to have flooded their mind. Did somebody come in and snatch Jesus' body in the middle of the night? Did did somebody beat them too, anointing Jesus' body with these spices? What is going on? But there in the tomb... On the right side sat a young man dressed in a white robe. And now let's take a look. Let's take a look at a picture of what this tomb looked like because it really helps us to understand what these women would have been confronted with. Now the image you see on your screen now is an image of what most scholars believe uh, a rich person's tomb in Jesus' time would have looked like. And what you see there at the top is the stones that are cut away so you can look inside and see what the inside would look like. So normally that would all be stone there, but they cut it away so you could see the inside. And you see as you walk in the tomb from that front entrance there, there's a little bit of a of a hole there that the workers would actually stand in to dig the tomb out so they wouldn't bump their heads against the tops of the rock. And you see the shelf along the inside of the tomb and you see the cloth in the back there where they would have laid Jesus' body on that back shelf right there in that tomb. And then you see... Uh, To the right, you see the stone that's in place that would have been, uh, they would have used a lever to move that stone and roll it in front of that entrance. (laughs) And as the woman, as the women approach the tomb and see that the stones rolled away, they have to be shocked. And, And as they look in the tomb, or maybe they even had to creep inside. We're not sure from the text, but as they, as they near the tomb and they see this angel, imagine 
their shock and their awe. When we come to Jesus seeking to have our own expectations met, God will often show us that his ways are far greater and far richer than even the very best of our intentions. These ladies were expecting to anoint the body of Jesus. That's a good thing. It's good that they wanted to do that. But Jesus' resurrection and God's plan in Jesus' resurrection far exceeded the expectations that they had in the moment. God had prepared the angels to put the women at ease and they were given a simple message. Look at the end of verse 6. Very simple message from the angel. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And so again, just as the announced birth of Jesus came to humble shepherds in a field, so too now would a few humble women receive the message of Jesus' resurrection. Death is conquered. Jesus is victorious. His body is no longer here. He is risen. All of the Old Testament prophecies and the words of Jesus, his own teaching concerning his resurrection, now extravagantly shining in the light of an empty tomb. Verses 7 and 8, just as he told you. And the angel has a mission for the women. Look at verse 7. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, we may pause and, and say, well, wait one second. When, when did Jesus tell his disciples that he would see them in Galilee after he resurrected? And we have to go all the way back to the upper room in Matthew's gospel account. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 32. Listen to the words of Jesus. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples, said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Drink of it all, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out. For the, many, uh, for the forgiveness of sins, I tell you I will not drink again of the first fruits of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now look at the end of this here, starting in verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. The response in verse 8 to this news is met with trembling astonishment. In Mark chapter 16, verse 8, when, when the women hear this angel and the angel gives them this great mission to go and to tell all the disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead, they are shocked, they're astonished, they're afraid. And I, I don't think that this fear involves the fact that there is an empty tomb and some missing guards. 
I, I think this fear probably involved the fact that if they told somebody, people may think that they had something to do with Jesus's missing body. I don't think it was fear over the news that they had been given. I'm sure there was some excitement. This this may not be over. Jesus really did raise from the dead. But we know from other accounts that their silence in this text would be short-lived. And we remember the scene uh, in other gospel accounts where they're running to find the disciples. And what happens? You remember what happens on their way to go and meet the disciples and tell them who appears to them on their way to the disciples? But Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 28. Jesus meets the women on their way. And how do they respond you remember they fall at his feet and worship a proper response friends when we witness the faithfulness of God God acting according to his perfect nature keeping his promises keeping his words demonstrating his love and his compassion and his grace and his mercy by doing exactly what he said he would do a proper response friends is to fall at his feet, to be thankful, and to worship. And so we might ask ourselves the question on this Easter Sunday, in our homes, gathered together with our families and our friends, how might our lives look in the light of the resurrection? And church, I would say that the resurrection, it's not just a glimmer of hope for those of us living under the restrictions of the coronavirus. The resurrection is a lighthouse beacon shining in the midst of this storm, guiding us safely home. Because of Jesus risen, we have great hope, great hope ever before us. Our lighthouse is heaven. The light of Christ shining forth for as long as we are in these seas, the seas of this world, there will be trouble. We can be sure of that. But at the top of the lighthouse shines a beacon who has overcome all of the troubles in this world. Celebrate the resurrection today, church family. Fall at the feet of Jesus in great thankfulness for what his resurrection has accomplished and proved. That there is truly nothing that can separate us from the love of of God in Christ Jesus. His love overcomes any obstacle that could stand in our way. The stone is rolled away. Though we cannot see it, death has been defeated. And if death is defeated, then so is COVID-19. Stand courageously and fearlessly, church, demonstrating the love that you have to demonstrate as the Lord brings opportunity to you. We want to take time today as we conclude our services to have a special time of prayer. This time of prayer, we would like you to focus on our world, on our nation, its leaders, on our communities. And I would ask you right now in your homes at the conclusion of our time together that you would pray specifically for those who have been immediately impacted by the coronavirus. 
Pray for health care providers. Pray for uh, our local leaders, local government officials. Pray for the staffs and, and the local leaders in our retirement homes and retirement communities. Pray for wisdom. Pray for guidance. Pray for recovery, for direction. Pray for those who've experienced economic loss and turmoil. For those who have lost jobs or have faced faced temporary unemployment, pray for the plans and purposes of God to be revealed to His people. And pray that according to His mercy, He would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the opportunities, the many opportunities that He is bringing into our pathways every day. Then, family, after you pray, rejoice and be glad. God has heard. He knows our hearts. He understands our desires. He longs to extend His grace and mercy beyond our wildest imagination. Just as Mary and Salome had no idea that they were approaching an empty tomb, we have no idea what God has on the other side of COVID-19. I will open us in prayer, and then I would like you to take the next few moments in your homes to pray together for our world and our nation. Happy Easter, church. We serve the God who conquered death and darkness. Live in the light of that hope and glory this Easter until we meet again. Let's pray. Father God, we sit together in our homes this Easter Sunday in what seems to be insurmountable times. We've been relegated to our homes. Our gathering sizes have been decreased. We have expressed through our obedience a desire to be faithful to the wishes of our government leaders and helping to aid in stopping the spread of this virus. But yet, Lord, as we sit here today, we know that this virus is still having its effects in our community in our country, and in our world. Many countries that surround us. Lord, there have been many people that have been affected and impacted by the devastation that this virus has caused. And we will take time today in our homes to pray for our government leaders who are making decisions, often with little time, to pray for our health care providers, our doctors, our nurses, our physicians who are battling this on the front lines, for the scientists that are doing everything they can to come up with cures, remedies to this, for our health care providers and health care workers that are working in local retirement homes and communities around the clock to provide care, putting themselves often in harm's way. And for the many residents of those communities who face loneliness because of the isolation that this virus has caused. Lord, I pray that their hearts would be full today. I pray that they would be rejoicing in the power of your resurrection and the reality that that power is no less powerful because they sit by themselves in their rooms today. But even more so, Lord, it's even more so powerful because we can stand in light and stand in hope 
that you have overcome this virus. It's been defeated just as you've defeated death. Lord, as we gather around tables with our families today, or as we sit by ourselves and reflect on these truths, as you recall them to our hearts and to our minds, I pray that we would rejoice in who you are and the power of your love as you've demonstrated it to us, that we would be glad and we would be thankful that we serve a risen Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for overcoming death. Thank you, Lord, for providing a way for us to enjoy an eternal relationship with the Father. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood you shed. Thank you for the life that you now live and for raising us up together with you. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for this day. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please continue to take some time to pray together in your homes. Have a happy Easter. We'll see you soon. See